Welcome to Those Who Do, the podcast, a conversation with people about their unique interests, hobbies, careers, and lives. I'm Zach Barclay, here with the Perry White to my J. Jonah Jameson, Tony Forsmark. Ernesto De La O is a husband and father, born and raised in California. He's just like you and me. He takes his kids to football games, has slip and slide parties in the backyard, and hosts sleepovers for his children's friends. It also just so happens he's an editor for reality television shows. Which ones, you ask? The answer is yes. Ernesto's resume of reality television is ridiculously long. Among his credits are The Challenge, Shark Week, Total Bellas, Total Divas, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, Tori and Dean, In Love, and The Amazing Race, just to name a few. Ernesto has gone from being a nameless, faceless data logger to now supervising teams of editors on assignments that are sometimes in multiple countries at the same time. He talks with us about his early career in terrestrial radio and explains how editing has changed throughout the years, from being an on-site, locked-in-a-room pursuit to something people are doing on a table in their kitchen all over the world. Besides being an accomplished and respected editor in the entertainment industry, Ernesto is a warm, welcoming, and open guy. He spends a ton of time with his family and was incredibly gracious and generous with his time with us. This is Those Who Do, Creating Reality with Ernesto De La O. I can't live without TV. Yeah, I almost have that internal monologue where you're like, it's almost like we've been doing this repeatedly and you should have learned how to do it. So my engineer here is having... (laughs) That uh, joke never gets old. No, it doesn't. No, it never gets old. (laughs) Not co-host, not friend of 25 years, just the engineer. (laughs) I love the dynamic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad somebody does. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm fine with it, too. I love it. It's uh... <laughs> Freaking ankle. What'd you do? Did you roll it or something? I have no idea. Just like four or five days ago, it oh. started hurting. Oh, so it wasn't from whatever happened over there earlier? No. Okay. You know, and you almost stepped on the dog. No, I, got a, I went to the doctor and a podiatrist appointment and all that stuff. So. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Maybe you'll get a cane. That would be cool. Or yeah. a fake ankle. Well, I mean, if you get a cane, you might as well get the monocle and just complete the monopoly. I'm not going to. I am 100% going to get like the silver lion head, you know. <laughs> so, you know well, I'm, I mean, if I, you're going to do that, you get a fur no coat. No hurricane for me. No hur. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> fur, fur coat and. <laughs> all of the rings. <laughs> no, my doctor said I don't use a cane. So this is what I'm doing now. <laughs> I mean, I ordered it on Amazon. You know how you get to that part where it says people, <laughs> people also, also bought this. this. Yeah, so I just clicked on all of them and that's what you do. <sighs> okay. <laughs> well, uh, welcome everybody to another episode of Those Who Do. We're, today we're uh, here with uh, Ernesto De La O. He's a longtime editor for reality television, and we're going to be talking a little bit about him and his work and uh, what he brings to it. Thank you, first of all, Ernesto, for gracing us with your presence. I'm, I'm so excited. This is so fun. I, I'm, I'm excited too, so I'm glad we both are. This is this will be a lot of fun, I think. Uh, but it really means a lot that you're willing to come in and talk to us because this is kind of a passion project of ours. And uh, I really love talking to people. Tony's here. I'm, well, that's people. Awesome. <laughs> I'm people. <laughs> well, I'm finally, get, you know, to get the opportunity to talk to somebody else because I'm sure my wife and my kids are all, you know, right. all over me talking about editing <laughs> yeah. every day. Yeah. I've, I've, jo- I've joked over the course of the weekend that this is the most that I've interacted with adults in months. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, just having some adult time, drinking a lot of way too much coffee and uh, and, and just being around grownups. 
I always like to start basically the same way uh, because we want to learn about you as a person because that's the most important part of finding out uh, about what it is that you do. So I always start the same way. Little Ernesto was born where? Born in Santa Monica, California. I know I, it's rare that, that actually like, you know, from California and Los Angeles is sort of a transplant, right? right but you like, would think, but our, our previous guest was also from West, he was from Westwood. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but so far, you're only the second person that's actually from here. Right. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it, it's interesting having, in hindsight now, because I've been doing this now for like 19 years. Mm-hmm. And so you, so you're, you know, hindsight, we're looking back, back into like how it sort of evolved into me doing this business, right? right. And I have very clear memory of, of what had happened, how it happened. I just didn't realize that that was going to be happening. When I was nine years old, I was watching TV. My parents came home and said, stop watching TV, it's bedtime. And it was 11 o'clock, so it was super late, clearly. And I said, they made me turn the TV off, and I, and I stormed into the living room. I said, I can't live without TV. <laughs> and it made a stomp, stomp, went back to my room, slammed the door. <laughs> my, my, you know, my parents, whatever, they went to bed and stuff. But 20 years later, right, like, <laughs> they made this thing about me watching too much TV, and this is what I do. Yeah. And all o- you do is watch. And not only can you not live, but it helps your children live <laughs> i mean my, my mom still mentions that saying the epiphany moment of like how she felt like oh don't kill your eyes watching tv right. and now it is with the provider don't get too close oh, to that screen or yeah. Yeah, do, do, you remember, do, do you remember yeah it was it was always like you're sitting too close to the screen now i I've, i was lucky enough to be at your house the other day you were very close to those screens well they're not crts either so <laughs> that being said here's my confession i think i need like like better, better glasses now in context. I think oh, I'm losing. <laughs> I've crossed over to old man, like bifocal. Like I went to, I went to get uh, uh, my eye prescription. She's like, well, I think it's time for progressives. And I was like, what's that? Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, it's where you can see like, you know, from far and close and stuff with a nice line. Is that oh, bifocals? <laughs> kind of, though, but Reagan uses them for her computer, my wife, uh, and I've got it. It's so that you could like, even if you want to be on your phone and watch TV, Oh, here is this and here is that. Yeah. See, I have special contacts now that help me uh, focus quicker from when I'm looking down to when I'm looking up because there's a moment when I look down and I look up and it takes me longer to focus. And I'm like, oh, man. And then the the eye doctor said, we might want to start talking about bifocals. I mean, I don't know what this wee shit is, man. But like, (laughs) Uh, I will say it was an awkward moment between me and my optometrist. And I was sort of like questioning her i'm like listen i don't mean to be questioning you but i'm only 48 years old okay so are we sure we should be having this conversation she's like yes sir you need bifocals i said well this is awkward because we're not getting them when you say need <laughs> define need and yes i definitely deflected and we i, I stormed out of the lenscraft was pretty much like i did when i was at nine years old when i was like i cannot live without tv like, i'm like i cannot i'm not having these bifocals <laughs> You got him so worked up, he can't even say bifocals. (laughs) So there it was. So nine years old. And then, of course, life happens and, and you know, nothing really like transpired until like, I think I was in uh, 21 years old and my sister was in high school and she was in marching band and said, oh, you know, can you do a band video for us? And I was like, band video? She's like, yeah, you know, you take all the, you film all the events and then at the end, you know, someone, you know, put all these images together into music and it's a fun video thing. And, 
And the parent that usually does it can't do it this year because their, their kid's graduating. I said, well, uh, sure. Sure, I'll figure it out. So, yeah. And, that, yeah. and then so I filmed a bunch of things and sort of, you know, at the end of the year when I have these like clips of video, I'm like, what do I do with this thing now? And right. stuff. So I actually had a friend who actually like did a little software, like video editing and, and said, oh, I'll help you guide you along. And, and we had a blast for like two weekends in a row. We were just editing and I was sort of like, he had no idea what we were doing. We just took premiere at the time and he was like, and this is how you do these things. And it was sort of open this thing and like, oh, this is fun. And then I wanted to spend like hours working on this. It was just some high school little video for right. my sister. Right. But it was so fun to sort of create this, what now, the montage, right? Like right. a bunch of images with music. And so, and that sort of like sparked that curiosity of wanting to do it more and more and more and more. And at the time I was working in radio, I was uh, trying to get into UCLA for music and then also trying to work at a radio station in Los Angeles here. Um, Which one? KLOS. Yeah. And so yeah. then I became like, you know, I was really into the morning thing and doing the radio producing thing. And so I did that for like four years and sort of, I was all over the place, right. In terms of trying to like nail down what I wanted to do career wise. And, um, and then I got laid off from KLOS cause Disney bought it uh -huh. and they were downsizing. And my producer boss said, listen, unless you want to travel and live like all over the country, like there's just really little jobs mm -hmm. in radio. And while it was fantastic to have like free concert tickets to everywhere and free swag and meet all these people and stuff. And so it sort of kicked me in the, in the butt to like find a career. And I'd, I'd remembered how much fun I'd had editing. And I said, oh, maybe I'll just go back to school and you know, go into film school. Where, did you ever do any on-air stuff on radio? Well, I was, I sort of went, started as a screener for the morning show mm -hmm. and then, and then as a producer. So like, because the morning show, Mark and Brian show was sort of integrated into like sort of the family vibe of the radio and stuff. So you were constantly come into the room or come in the studio, <laughs> right. put on some headsets and sort of talk about these things. And, and usually it was because a thing is that like you didn't want to talk about in general. Um, but yeah, so the, yeah, I, I still have my 97.7 KCRR, the classic rock station for $7 an hour. <laughs> Yeah. Seven dollars an hour. I, I will tell you that my wife, uh, I overslept one morning because you had, you know, you had to arrive in the morning by like five fifteen in the morning on the mm -hmm. dot. And so I overslept one morning because at the time I was trying to make a living. So I had three jobs. Mm -hmm. I worked at a bank. I worked at a blockbuster and I had my morning show job. And so I was exhausted all the time. And so I, 6.15, right? Half asleep. Phone rings. And Mariah, my wife, answers the phone. She goes, it's Mark and Brian, and you're on the air. <laughs> yeah, that's and awesome. I was like, what time is it? What? <laughs> and she's like, good morning, Ernesto. This is Mark and Brian. Your bosses. <laughs> that is awesome. I was like, I'm sorry. And then I started ex explaining things, right? Like you would normally a conversation. Right. Right? And then you realize that you're on the air <laughs> right. having this conversation. So then you sort of like freeze because you're trying to quantify the fact that you're like having this like conversation that probably like millions of people on the radio do not really care about, but then they do because they're, they're seeing the fear of my voice. Uncomfortability in your voice. And yes, That's classic. That's awesome. So yeah, it was, it was hilarious. Not for me, for them, I'm sure. Right. Uh, Mariah got a big laugh of it, but uh, yeah. So what year was that, would you say? So I started working in radio in 96 okay. and left in 2001. So it was, it's interesting because like I've now, so my co-host, obviously they'd long retired from KLOS and stuff, but like Mark, one of the hosts, you know, wrote a book. And so it's sort of a, it was an interesting take. If you're part of Los Angeles radio, they were, they were the, you know, Rick D's was the iconic radio of Los Angeles right. for most of the late eighties and early nineties. And then Mark and Brian well, 70s. came in. Seventies even. Yeah. yeah. And so Mark and Brian came in with a sort of like different view on radio and took it over and became like the, you know, the, the kings of radio. Mm. 
for a good amount of like the mid 90s or actually early 90s um, until Howard Stern came in and sort of like wiped the country in terms of radio. Right. So I sort of uh, was in this knee deep viewpoint of a show that was dealing with a lot of chaos and and struggle within themselves on their own need to succeed when they were getting hit hard by Howard Stern. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, to the to the regular listener, they were like kumbaya, like they were like best buds, having been in radio for a long time. They, they were ultimate professionals in the fact that like on the air, they were like the best buds. And if you listen to them, like, wow, this is like the greatest thing I want to hang out with them. And I was part of this sort of stressful situation, which was like, they were never talking to each other. And it was very awkward. Oof. Many times, like, you know, they come out of break, they go to different rooms. They would talk for about five minutes in the morning mm-hmm. and sometimes an occasional break, but that's it. And then they would have a post radio thing and that was it. And I didn't even realize just how tumultuous it was until like reading this book now that just came out uh, about just how it wasn't awkward. It was just like, it didn't feel cohesive, right? Like, right. because you were dealing with two different personalities and this, their stress. And we were sort of the underlings of like trying to facilitate a show while dealing with their stress. Managing that. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. That, then it, did it just become that way because of the stress of Howard Stern coming on the scene or had they always kind of had that relationship? No, actually it was, they had a great relationship coming into Los Angeles and being dominant force. They were actually like, they bounced off comedically wise. They were just mm-hmm. a great team. I think it was just that sort of inability to handle being at the top where like, you know, being at the pinnacle of Los Angeles radio and then all of a sudden taken down and, not and then being, not being able to manage that right. and sort of like essentially struggling to get back on top, unable to sort of have that conversation and saying like, we're getting our butts beat and we don't know how to do it. Mm. And so, you know, what, what happened obviously was sort of trying to change things and, and re-evolve and reinvent themselves. Uh, Alienated them from each other. And they couldn't right. do it yeah. really. Like it was right. sort of, it just became much more of a, Let's not talk about it. Let's just do it. But that sort of like stirs the pot for like this sort of separation, right? Where you're Uh like, you don't know how to, and maybe they weren't good at communication in general, like, and being able to like talk about feelings and being, well, I think, I think Mark's book said in the book is like, they just weren't able to agree that they got their butts kicked and just come up with a plan. And so they were throwing things, they would fire the producer. I think they went to three producers after that Uh and, and sort of like, so it was just sort of chaotic to try to build and. You know, like, so it, it was, it was an interesting time, you know, and that, and then now it, from this book, uh, there's, you know, he, Mark was dealing with some other issues like panic attacks and things like that and stuff. And mm-hmm. so there was a deeper layer to all this, uh, of which we were never a part of. So, mm-hmm. but it was. Now, it's it was, in- interesting to have a, a look behind the curtain of something you were experiencing. Like that, that would be a really, it'd be kind of heady to like, you were there. And then you're reading in this book about what was happening while you were there to have this new point of view yeah. Yeah, perspective of what was happening while you were seeing it. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's the, the tough part, right? Cause I, I wish you, and sort of a big, bigger problem in general, right. Of how we just don't see problems. People put this facade, right. Mm-hmm. About life and they, they portray themselves of what they think they want people to see themselves and they don't really see the turmoil that's internal right apparently it was like sleeping not sleeping through the night and drinking a bottle of wine to go to bed and he obviously had to show up at 4 30 in the morning Oof. for radio and stuff yeah. and so like you're trying to like you're dealing with the stress of of trying to get back on top but you're dealing with the stress of this issue and so like you know we got some we just got the stress of it some days where like right. you know it's like oh we're like walking on eggshells essentially or like 
you know, I'm, I'm taking calls, trying to get the best calls of the day. And like, I, I'm running to the break, bringing the calls and he's just grumpy with me. Cause like, I didn't get a good call or like, you mm-hmm. know, like I got a good call and, and when he punches him up, like he hung, he hangs up and I'm like, <laughs> I, I think it's out of my control, right. but like yeah, I'm taking the right. brunt of this moment. Right. Mm-hmm. And like somebody's got to be blamed. <laughs> <laughs> but with all that, I think what's most fascinating about it is that despite what I feel like was chaos, never really was really like portrayed on the air. None of it really ever happened on the air. And it was like, I mean, that's the the true test of professionalism is that yeah. no matter, and probably like, uh, <laughs> no matter how, how crazy it was behind the scenes, when that mic turned on, it was like kumbaya. And mm-hmm. it's go time. Mm-hmm. We got it's a go job time. to do. And, yep. and their comedy was on point always. They always knew when, when to hit their timing and stuff. And so I think that was sort of the most fascinating thing for me is that like, you can, uh, you can hide it well. Yeah. <laughs> I always wanted to be the guy that did the KGGO voice. 95 KGGO. <laughs> yeah, that's like that, that was a local station for us. I, was like, I, I just remember getting a note when I first started working at the radio station because I didn't put enough emphasis on the. Like we're the, the enunciation, yeah, the <laughs> classic rock station. And I'm like, really, man? Like it's I'm voice tracking for like midnight to 5 a.m. How much focus do I need to put on the at that point? Like it was it's branding, man. Yeah. It's branding. So and when I got hired, they didn't tell me. So, you know, I said seven bucks an hour, but they only paid me for the amount of time I was in studio voice tracking, not for the length of my show. So I was making seven dollars like a week. Because That's incredible. I, I could go in and voice track the whole week's show in an hour because I was just hitting breaks. Everything was programmed for me. So I would get a list um, on the computer of what music I was going into the break, where I was coming out of the break, and I'd voice track the breaks, and that was it. That's incredible. Yeah. So well, it's interesting now how radio is and you know how it, it's evolved into what we is currently, which is like unlocalized radio, right? Like if you are listening to radio in Iowa or Idaho or New York or Los Angeles, it's one voice being recorded from some central hub uh, that gets very well packaged by computer systems and advertising that like you have none, the, you're none the wiser that it's like one voice that has like 50,000 markets, but the locality of what used to be like, you listen to your Los Angeles radio and be like, Oh, okay. It's my neighborhood DJ or right. whatever. It's gone. It's now like sort of this corporate, like spoon fed, like, well, it's kind of gone. I mean, I think pl- places like, LA and say Chicago or, or New York. Cause I mean, there's still the morning hosts for K rock. Those are all you know local, but I think, you know, when you go to like say kiss FM, maybe not. Well, right? we've, we've still got some morning zoo happenings in Waterloo, Iowa. We've still got local, local stations. Yeah. I mean, we've got a couple that are locally owned, so that helps too. Um, but then uh, the station I used to work for was owned by cumulus forever. Um, and then they sold them to somebody else. And I don't know what's going on there now. I could go in. I still have keys. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember when I let, got let go from KLOS, I, I took an interview with the K-Rock and I took an interview with another alternative station at the time. It was called Y107. It was like the the new K-Rock of Los Angeles in the nine, in like 2001. And I remember touring their studios and, and they, I'd seen what, I think it was called Da Vinci or something like that. But it was basically like the new software they'd come in and and how it was all checkerboarded in terms of like automate you know the sort of the computer their what their version of now modern ai in terms of mm-hmm. like being able to sort of like take one person record about 50 breaks and mm-hmm. then lay them in a checkerboard that like they could run programming for the next four hours or the week 
and program on a Sunday and then you're, they're done. Like, yeah. Walk you know? out and that's yeah. it. Yep. And, and that's what I, I mean. That's what I was doing. I was programming my show for the whole week. So I would, I, I had a show, it would start Sunday night at, at midnight. So Monday morning, at midnight would run till five. And then every day, Monday through Friday. And I would go in usually on like a Thursday the week before and voice track that whole next week. And it would just play. Like one time I, when I first started, I went in and voice tracked the night cause I was running behind. So I like, I had to voice track that night. So I ran in, it was a buddy of mine's birthday. So I voice tracked the breaks on one of the breaks. I'm like, Hey, and happy birthday to Kyle Jurgensen. I finish, I go to the bar where he's drinking. I'm watching my watch and I'm like, all right, the break's coming up. Hey, Kyle, come out to my car. <laughs> so we go out to the car. I turn on the radio. And it's like, and happy birthday to Kyle Jurgensen. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Well, I, I think what you're talking about really on display, like on, on Sirius XM, you know, people are, I mean, they, that's all pre-programmed and the, the, most of the DJs are at home. Yeah. No, they're just recording at home. And what a wonderful yeah. time to be alive, right? <laughs> it's almost like you could do some type of radio show in your dining room around a circular wooden table with your friends. A radio show, though. <laughs> That's sort of radio. Oh, okay. It's way easier if you describe this to old people as it's an internet radio show, because then it's like they accept it somehow. But if you call it a podcast, they're like, what's a podcast? <laughs> no, I mean, that was the question my aunt was like. What, she saw Zach uh, had a post where he's like, uh, new new endeavor coming up, and he had his suitcase and and tagged me and my my aunt's like okay so what's going on and i go oh we're we're just starting a podcast and then like a couple minutes later it's well you're gonna have to tell me what that what what that is, what that is someday what a podcast is i'm like, <laughs> I'm like okay it's a call it's a it's a conversation yeah, it's just not like, it's not a text so yeah well it's oh. fascinating i think i think we're you know not to diver, change the conversation or whatever but i but i think you know dealing with how ai in the last week or so or last month has really sort of if, like it's becoming like with ChatGPT and like all the AI apps just really rolling out for everybody to have that like it's becoming the sort of like this the topic of conversation and so mm -hmm. when we talk about how radio what we consider as the change right the sway uh, of radio now I would imagine that they're going through this sort of change now where like if you're a corporation that owns radio how can I now save even more money because uh -huh. like you know I having working in TV, so I'm getting like I've been able to preview the audio mo like duplication AI, and it is frightening mm -hmm. in terms of how good it is. I heard tests, and I could not decipher the real voice from the AI voice, and it's like it's it's really. And we're at the we're at the first year of like mm -hmm. development. I I can't imagine just how much better we talked about this the algorithm, right? Sort of you know they can sort of finesse this sort of algorithm in five years, it's going to be even better. Like right now you need about 30 minutes to 45 minutes to an hour of someone's voice to get a good baseline for like, and then you can type whatever you want and, and have that read. It may not have the dynamic read like, oh, you know, 95.5, you know, the sort of the, the yes. emphasis yet. yet. <laughs> but within that, within that same application, you can have an option to essentially lay in your voice and your inflection. So if I wanted to say like, coming up, you know, and then so you it it now the AI takes your voice, lays the original voice over your voice, and tries to uh, find the balance sure. of the inflection. And so, and that is super new and not quite perfect yet. Yeah, but in five years oh, that, will, oh, that, that will be perfect. Will so we were we were actually just having this conversation about the strikes and AI and what that means for like as an actor or a voice person. 
that's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> it is. And so if you think yeah. about it, like, you know, thinking about Rick Dees or anybody who else happens to be the, the most lately, like Ryan Seacrest, right? So like if someone were to record two hours of Ryan Seacrest and put it into the computer, like he could essentially do another job. And as long as he got approval of what, what he said exactly. on the radio. And right, that's the point. Is he would never, ever have to be in a studio yeah. ever again and collect a paycheck. Well, then, but it also opens the door to, guess what? We can have Casey Kasem back because we have all the top American top 40s from the last, you know, 40 years that he did. And you could, you know, well, that's, that's, and he would have no say, you know, several, you there, at least. several years ago, I saw a demonstration where they took, uh, you know, they fed in Obama, a bunch of his speeches, and then they spit it back out where they just made him say whatever they wanted. And it was... I mean, you could kind of feel a little bit the pauses, but that was several years ago. Mm-hmm. All right. We're in trouble. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's, I think terrestrial radio, I think you're right, is probably where it's going to show up first because terrestrial radio is struggling anyway. So if they can make what they're doing cheaper. And well, I mean, look at Jack FM. They don't even have DJs. They haven't had them for years. Oh, yeah. You know, they just, it's straight. But I mean, if every local station can just key in here in, uh, you know, here in Lake Tahoe, you know, and now, now it feels local again, you know, but it's not even a human. Like, uh-huh. I could see that happening. And, it's true. Yeah. And that's the thing, right? Like, what is important? What 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 do people gravitate to? Do, does, you know, a lot of people would say, like, you know, in the early days when I was working on radio, it was like, too much talking, more music. Because mm-hmm. everyone wanted to just listen to music, right? So, but when you have funny entertainment, like, you know, if you talk about Howard Stern, like, that's engaging. Like, he's right. so entertaining mm-hmm. that you were like... He supersedes music, so mm-hmm. it, I, I think that's the struggle, right? I think you could have a, 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 an AI voice, but it may not resonate anyway or connect with it somebody. So, mm-hmm. like, right. just because they're sort of like localizing it by saying, like, "Come to Pete's Auto Mart later for the, <laughs> right, the, the right. barbecue jamboree or whatever." But as far as entertainment factor, and that's the key, yeah. which mm-hmm. which I yeah. think AI is far from like being entertaining yet. Right. Yeah. Yeah, unless you look at the the disasters when it screws up, that's kind of entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> or just like, oh or, yeah, when they had to pull the the, the chat bot off of uh, Twitter, or because it was it racist, just, it almost yeah. instantly turned <laughs> racist immediately. <laughs> so it wasn't a chat bot; it was just somebody on Twitter. <laughs> but it is truly frightening from all businesses, and and, and speaking from an editor. Uh, producer, you know, it is like with these AIs in terms of like being able to sort of like throw in clips to a, a sort of an application and then having sort of like quantify like and spitting something out that maybe it's not perfect, but it's like faster. And, you know, we're coming into this TV is sort of changing in that, you know, budgets are, are becoming shorter and smaller, that they're finding ways to cut corners at everywhere. Um, even, you know, when I started in uh, 2001 reality TV, you know, sh- the schedules were longer and there was more effort, more emphasis on color correction, uh, making them look super pretty, obviously, like, you know, based on TV standards, right? So now, but over the years, because of budgets and cuts and like looking for ways to trim the fat, essentially, it's like, well, what can we get it as good? Is it broadcast legal? Is it, how can we, you know, get it to a point? And so now you start thinking philosophically about editing. Can you throw certain things into an AI and and pop out something in a faster faster schedule? Right. Um, if we for years we talked about whether or not editing shows would ever be farmed out to other countries, mm-hmm. mainly because people can learn the people can learn the, the software, right, and for a lot cheaper than what the the, the going rate for editors are here in Los Angeles or in the United States, and so that never really transpired. I think it's hard to understand culturally culture, I mean, yeah. 
Well, and and a, a lot of times, you know, a, a show has a voice and, you know, like the, the editing, uh, I'm sure you'll talk about this later, uh, that the editing kind of gives the, the feel of the show and, and that is determinant on the human aspect of it and knowing the show. So if you start farming it out to like eight different people in different places, you're each time you farm it to a new person, there's another chance that they just don't get it. You know, they don't get what the flow is supposed to yeah, be. Yeah, well, I mean, unlike, is. say, animation, which they ship off all the time. Right. Yeah, you, you're not going to necessarily have the same sensibilities television-wise. You know, what, what they're doing in Japan on TV is not what we're doing in Japan, you know, in, right. in television, right? As far as cuts, uh, flow things like that. No, it's true. And I think that there's an inherent rhythm and, and, and sort of pacing that like every, every country has, whether if you don't travel and see other TVs, you really don't get it until you actually travel abroad and see what they're watching. You're mm -hmm. like, Whoa, this is so completely different. Like if you're even just to the UK or London, like if you watch the TV, it's a lot slower. BBC is like, you know, paced out a whole different rhythmically. Mm -hmm. And that's been an issue. We've had editors who've like come from like the UK and they just, the rhythm is just completely off because mm -hmm. it's a completely different like sensibility, right? To, to, to it all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because you, you, you want the feel for the people who are watching it because you don't want it to be jarring, you know? And so like different people from different parts of the country have a different flow to their life. You know, I mean, things are a lot slower in other places, faster in other places. So I guess that makes sense. I hadn't really thought of it that way, mm -hmm. but that does make a lot of sense. So, uh, Reality TV comes in 2001. How did that come about? Well, it's interesting, right? Like I hear, so I started at and Murray, which is sort of the creator of reality TV. Like they created the real world. Uh -huh. yep. And that's sort of new avenue of storytelling, right? Taking people, um, social, sort of social experiment, essentially. Right. Uh -huh. And um, putting people from different backgrounds, different histories, and putting them together and sort of like seeing how they can cohabitate, right? In so, the real world. In the real world. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, and, and, and what a great, what a great experiment has been, right? It's sort of the, the dawn of what is now, we look at reality TV, you know, I came into it in 96. So it was four or five years later after I think that, I think the first real world and that was 90, 91. Yeah. And so by the time I I jumped in, it was sort of already like diving in. I think there were multiple shows already being created and people, the wave of it sort of saw as, as, as a new way of telling stories, right? Mm -hmm. In a different way, in a refreshing way. Um, you could cast people from whole different backgrounds and create incredible good television as long as, and, and you know, they were fantastic, pioneering, great storytelling. So yeah, it was like this sort of like, I came into it and not really knowing. I, I honestly, growing up, I didn't have cable because we couldn't afford it. Right. So mm -hmm. it was sort of refreshing. And coming in from radio, I was sort of, wow, this is fantastic. And so I took a, a job. I, I just wanted to get in the door while working on my degree. And they said, entry level job, logging. I'm like, logging? What, what is that? Like, I had <laughs> mm -hmm. no idea what the term was. And so I said, well, you're going to be watching tapes. And I was like, Okay, well, that sounds like I can't I can live without I, TV. I, I can't do this. Amazing, <laughs> right? It's fantastic. So, like, I show up. I show up, and there's like this uh, TV monitor at a cubicle and a typewriter or computer and um, a bunch of these. This is gonna date me now, but like quarter inch tapes, mm -hmm. which are little blocks, right? And so you pop in a tape, and you're like, you're gonna watch this thing for half an hour, and you're gonna type in everything that you say or that happens in it, paraphrasing essentially, mm. um, and you're gonna use some keywords like. If there's a specific angle, low angle, full screenshot. So they had these like keywords of things to write. And, um, and so it was fascinating. I'm like, okay. So, and then 
I was, at first, I was starting to type everything everything was saying. Of course, I never typed fast enough, but like I became a pretty fast typer. <laughs> right. Um, but then someone, like my first day, they're like, no, 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 just just capture the, the essence of what's happening. If there is a line or two that you can type in. And so I did that for a whole day and did the next day. And so this was like a six-week gig of like this reality show. And it was quite fascinating. You were just watching what essentially was home video footage mm-hmm. in real time. And um, yeah, that's what logging was. And that, in that in that time, they would go film hours and hours of footage, and it had to be logged. And there was no way to quantify all that stuff. Someone could watch it essentially, like from the field, and write notes. But like the actual like keeping track of how things were 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 managed was a sort of computer program that was created called Pilotware. And you'd essentially like uh, type it all out, and then some story person, some later would come in and be like, um, type out for searches later. Uh, you had a daily editor who would like take the all the essence of the day and film, you know, edit it down into like a, a day so the producers could watch it. And it's interesting to look at it how that process is then how it is now. It is so much more streamlined than they really took the time to really, really make sure that everything was watched so in a different how, way. So how was it? How was the, the the things that you typed in linked to the video? Was it just lining up time code or was, was it somehow digitally imprinting it onto the video? Yeah, it had a, it was connected time code wise. So okay. as you typed and watched and you stopped it, it would have a, a time code imprint on it. So you would type in what was, was the most bizarre thing about it after three days. Actually, it was the first Friday I went home and I remember my brain sort of like having, you know, eight hours of this for like five days. And I remember walking in my hallway and, and my internal monologue was like, Low angle to the faucet, <laughs> zoom in as I pour a glass of water, I refreshingly say like, that's delicious. No, but it was, it was like, it was like all encompassing and, and um, it was fascinating because I was just watching these people and it, it, it's even more crazy because like <laughs> you watch somebody for like five weeks and then you like get to like, think you know them because right. right. you watch, <laughs> right. you right. basically hung out with them for like five weeks. <laughs> And then, like, it, it, at some point, I saw somebody once in, like, casting. I was like, hey. And it was that awkward moment, like, you don't know who I am. <laughs> You've never seen me before. But I've watched you for five weeks. You know? <laughs> I have an intimate knowledge of all your movements. Wait, that came out really, really wrong and creepy. <laughs> and so how did that transition to, so I know that that is a progression from a logger to assistant editor to yeah, yeah it was sort of a you know at the at the time it was sort of like i had this uh necessity to just try everything and learn everything mm-hmm. and, and uh, the company made it really really easy for me to sort of like i remember making friends with the hr person and saying like i will take any job because i just want to learn i want to learn all facets and i'm not quite sure what to do and so whatever happens to be like even if it's a one week one day gig and so i did audio casting i did like dubbing i did coordinating i was the release coordinator and so i sort of like you know taking all these different jobs to really like learn kind of like and even though in the back end i was like i was still enjoying editing but i you know you sort of don't have that like that clear direction of because there were so many different jobs and facets and and uh and sort of being in the middle of it was sort of like the the niceness being able to sort of like see what people are doing immersed completely in this whole thing and then actually the vibe was so cool having worked in the business for a long time it wasn't very sterile and nowadays, I've, I've worked in many shows, other companies, and different places where it's everyone kind of goes in, closes the door. And actually, I was talking to a colleague the other day about how, like, she worked at a company and everyone just sort of, like, closes their door and see you at 630. <laughs> wow. you know? And it's, like, a very sterile. And if it, uh, if anyone remembers, like, the MTV, uh, MTV used to be based in Santa, well, New York and, and Santa Monica. 
And they had this uh, building called the Motel. And it was like you walked in. It was something like a 2001 Odyssey because it was like this long hallway <laughs> of do- white doors. And it was very sterile. And no, everyone would show up at 9 in the morning, pop out at like 6 o'clock. Yeah, it was very <laughs> eerie. And I hated working there. It's kind of like those old 1950s things where all the guys got out of their cars, get out of their driveway and pull in and then cut it back out. Yeah, Something com- completely out of Pleasantville. It was like it was <laughs> yeah. that sort of bizarre. Yeah. Um, but and that sort of like you know sort of propelled me to sort of like continue doing it and doing it and being excited. And all the editors there were so like it was such a chill vibe that they were like pop on in. I'm like oh cool and like you could see what they were doing and some and then sort of that propelled to like my boss who was like um, you know I'd been doing it enough different jobs there. They said like well what are you gonna do like you gotta you gotta pick a career like are you gonna go and be a post supervisor or like. You know, are you going to do like story? Or are you going to do like editing? And he's like, but you got to make a decision because you can't, you can't stay in this land forever. And um, yeah, he, so he, uh, you know, he gave me a weekend to think about it. And I came back and I said, I think I want to do editing. He's like, great. I got this project for you to do. It's not going <laughs> to pay you much, but, I, you know, it's really important. And like basically. That go, was easy. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was literally like that. And he, he was a great mentor and he was able to say like, you know, so I came back and he's like, I got a project for you. Take all this footage make it something entertaining. I don't think it'll ever see the light of day. The network wants to see it. Just, it's a promo type thing. Um, and that's what it was. I, 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 it dialed back to my, that, that high school trying to make that video for my sister. And I, I remember working the, the entire weekend. Like I was up in the building for like two, three, three in the morning, like, and, um, long, far much more hours than I think he expected me to be in this thing. And I created this thing and it looked like an episode and he watched it and he's like, how long did you work on this thing? <laughs> a couple hours. <laughs> I was like, 30 minutes. Yeah. Uh, and he's good. like, <laughs> and it, he, you know, he was blown away. And, I, and I, I, I think that was it. That was it. Like for me, it was like, it was so much fun where you, I lost time. You sort of immerse yourself in yeah. something that's so. Engaging. Engaging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, being able to craft music and like cut it together, trim it down, find little nuances, reactions, all those things. And I think, you know, the aspect of choices, like what moment is going to resonate more or like, you know, cause you have quantifiably so much footage and waiting it down to the, the, the best. And, and it was such a good control. You know, if you like puzzles, it's what it is, right? The mm-hmm. Problem solving. Oh, I don't have this moment. And that sort of was the, the, the seed to sort of propel me to say like, Oh, that's what I want to do. And, and, and move me, move me into the path. In reality TV, uh, as opposed or uh, maybe very similar to uh, episodic, how much uh, influence does the editor have on story? It does uh, Do the producers come to you and say, this is the, the story that we're going to try to push? Or do you find a story through the footage? Well, you know, it's interesting. <clears throat> there is... It's a cool, I think it's a collaboration uh-huh. ultimately because, you know, I've, I've said this many times that like, I think, you know, with sitcoms, it's sort of a writer's medium, right? And films tend to be a director's medium uh-huh. where it's sort of like the editor gets a creative shot at essentially a, a rough cut. Um, and then the director comes with his visions of takes and shots and uh-huh. ultimate vision. And obviously like most films um, end up being what the director wants it to be. Uh, very rarely do uh, editors have see their vision through as, as their vision in a movie. But when it comes to, you know, reality television, it's sort of a, it is a collaboration of storytelling because there is a story department that, that makes sure that they're, they know all the essence of the characters and what stories are possible, are possible and compelling enough, right? Uh Sometimes you may have a moment that is fantastic, but there's no beginning or middle and end for an arc. Right. And so you have to sort of stick to those sort of like 
rules that you just can't have a moment. It might be a good moment, but it doesn't necessarily begin. Have, yeah, it, begin it doesn't advance to anything. Yeah, so I think there's yeah. careful crafting in terms of like, uh, not a script, but a sort of an outline essentially like, this is a great moment. This is a great story. This is like, you know, this, this person, we need to really tell this story and make, and, and as they sort of massage it into something that's called a string out, right? You know, the editor comes in and takes this and then really dives in even more, but it is a collaboration because you are having to choose the right interview bites to sort of like support that story and make uh -huh. sure that it's, it stays compliant. So I don't think it's either or, um, I think it's a collaboration of like editors and story departments. Right. Like, and obviously that dynamic changes based on whatever company has to be doing. Cause sometimes you have segment producers, co-executive producers, showrunners. Um, I worked at a company years ago that was like, they would shoot all day and the co-executive producer would sit in edit bay and say like, okay, so this is what I shot today. And so this is what I want the story to be. And it was very, very rogue and there was no organization. It was like, right. uh, it was very chaotic for me. And I was just like, listening. I, but you basically paying me to listen to like, you tell me what you want. Right. Um, as opposed to really massaging it and really putting thought into it. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I think that aspect of like has been worked on a little bit better over the years. Uh, over the years. Yeah. I mean, I, and that's what I find fascinating about it is that you, I mean, you have an idea of what's you know, the format you have the idea of, but as the footage comes in, it, it's changing the story as it goes, as opposed to, you know, we have a storyboard or we have, you know, the script, you know, weeks beforehand. And so you could, as an editor, you can be like, okay, I know what, I know what we're, we're building, but you, you're, you're kind of just going with the flow. It is. And sometimes it evolves, right? So sometimes it's like you go in go, thinking it's one direction, but then you really start diving in and something, it's a whole different other story. And so, you know, crafting that sort of is, you know, I, I think that's what, for me from a, an editor perspective, like the most enjoyment out of it is it, you know, I've worked on shows where like you come in saying like, this show is going to be a drama. It's going to be very intense. And we're going to come in scoring this way. And like, then like a week later, you already cut to a first episode and someone comes in and said, well, the network decided actually it's going to be a comedy. And you're sort of like taken back for about a day or two. And you're like, what? And then you sort of have to go back in, script all the music, look at all the footage and, and, and retool it essentially. Mm -hmm. And so that is the challenge of it, of it all to try and like figure out now it's the comedy and write the angles and all those things and stuff. So that, yeah. So it's that fluidity, that sort of like constant thing that makes it exciting for me. Cause it is sort of like a ever evolving. Every day is different based on what, what, what you have. And you and with. I have talked about how important sound is to the storytelling and the in reality TV. How much input do you have in, you know, soundtracking? Well, it's interesting too, because like budgets keep getting cut. And so there is an inherent problem in terms of like how you're able to score and what you're able to score with, right? In the old days, you, you know, films, you know, you have a film composer who's able to like, you lay your picture down as a picture editor and someone comes in and rescores it and everything's scored. But you know, nowadays, you know, I think like, I always, I always wonder how editors who've never had music background can score to me, that's the biggest, like, I always, I'm curious, like, have you had music background? Most people will say no. And I'm like, how do you know how to cut music? Because it is, it's so hard. I had music, you know, I studied music. So I know like time signature and 4-4 four, four, and 3-4 and rhythm and stuff. So essentially you're giving a long six minute piece of music and you're able to say like, okay, well now I have to fit this. Into finding like, the bridge, you know, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. sort of like finding the right, like, you know, you just, you know, find the right piece of it that sort of can, uh, so it's not so jarring, right? Mm -hmm. Many times it's it's also like you're basically the composer again. So you're listening to different versions of it, some with stems and some with the bass and some with just the the, the, the underbelly sync or whatever. So, and being able to sort of like 
score it in a way that actually works. It's very hard. And so I, you know, I'm always astounded when an editor hasn't had any sort of music background, but it is, it is another fun part of it. Like being able to sort of like rescore it's it essentially it's like music design, sound design. Right. Um, yeah. And sort of rhythmically having to sort of like work it out, work out the timing of it. And it's another fun part other than just like the basic sound design too, which is so fun to like craft, but not to digress. Cause I always say like, you know, the biggest problem too is budgets. Right. And so now we're having to deal with libraries a little bit and sort mm -hmm. of less quality uh, scoring. You right. Know, you because do. you've talked about before working for MTV is kind of a cheat sheet for you guys because you have access to some things that other places would not. Yeah. Right? You know, in the in the old days, um, up until recently, uh, you know, you would MTV licenses were and, and I'm not the music expert. So I'm actually like continuously learning about just how much undervalued. My sister actually works in the music business now. Okay. So I'm actually, you know, in pinging her on like. How does this work? And I've been asking a lot of questions because there is so much like the copywriting and the the licensing and, um, you know, from these shows that live in perpetuity, right? Like, you know, to license a music that's going to be arable for a long time is 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 a hard thing to do. And so, like, uh, yeah, it's always interesting to see how, like, how we dive into that. Um, right. How, how much is borrowed and how much is created just for that or what, what, what's out there that's, you know, free range. Yeah. In the yeah. old, <laughs> and in the old days you would get like a minute 30, uh, if you did an MTV show, cause I worked on shows like parental control and like all these other, like this. And so in those days, like you would get a minute and a half of whatever MTV library had access to, which is fantastic. I mean, think about being able to score like guns and roses or like November Rain, one of your shows, right? right? Like, so I worked for a show, for a showrunner who put all his money on like his first episode and he put all like these high-end songs because everyone like, like the network would be like, this is fantastic. Why do I love this show so much? And it was, just, <laughs> the music was so amazing. <laughs> so like, you know, but nowadays it's sort of like the, those licensing and everything is becoming so expensive that like they aren't able to do that for a while. So that was like the, the heyday. Even until recently, we, we had that MTV license that allowed us to have like, you could have like, like last year I worked on a show and we were able to drop in Alanis Morissette and all these main songs that sort of elevated the, what seemed like the budget of a show. Right. right. Absolutely. Under the blanket of MTV. But, uh, you know, as things time, as change, things change in terms of like licensing. Right. Uh, and I'm sure show. streaming music is probably part of the equation as to so. why it's changed. And it makes sense. You know, if you're yeah. a music writer, right, you know, you sort of want to get paid and mm. sort of that... Those licenses have to, I, I, I see the plight of everybody who essentially like isn't getting paid and there's these blanket licenses that were used forever and not really, you know, making sure that the writers were getting paid or the music collaborators. And so like the trickle down effect of like finances, like, so it, it hurts us because we can't use those sort of licenses to be able to elevate our shows. Right. But it, but, but it makes sense. at the same sense. time, they, they, they need to make a living too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, rem uh, I remember once waking up, it's such a weird deal, waking up in the middle of the night, like midnight, and all of a sudden I have this song in my head. And I'm like, what? What is this song? And what was it the theme song for? Well, I finally drilled down and realized that it's Paint It Black, right? And then I'm like, what is this the theme song for? So I'm Googling around on the internet, trying to figure it out. And then I, I finally key into my brain, oh, it's from Tour of Duty on CBS. You remember Tour of Duty, the uh -huh. Vietnam War show? Well, they were only able to use it for so many years. So I'm looking at these clips thinking I'm going insane because all these, uh, the title sequence clips are a completely different song. And I'm like, 
I, I'm losing my mind here. I know that this was the theme song <laughs> for this show, but I, I assume that's what had to happen because it was a Rolling Stone song. They only had the the rights to use it for maybe the first air, and then when, when it went to uh, syndication, maybe they didn't have the rights anymore. Because of music rights, I almost had to like check myself in somewhere because I thought <laughs> I was losing my mind. <laughs> it is it is sad because you know if you have, if you're a fan of a certain show, right? These sort of you know for me, my day doesn't go without me hearing music. Mm-hmm. I usually it's sort of like my mood, right? Like we went a walk today and we were listening to like I was playing the Sundays for my kids and like and so music is a big part of my daily life yep. and I pushing that on my kids, right? But like that aspect of like attaching a, a song or to a certain scene or moment or a main title, yeah. right? It sort of like lays in a foundation for like your memory for that thing and sort of like, yeah, it gets undercut essentially nowadays because it is. Most shows that we work on now will only have a certain song for the first arable views and then they do a version called an evergreen version, which oh, is like wow. laying in different cues or different tracks that essentially are like more generic but right. play in perpetuity forever. So you get one shot at it and stuff. But if you're like... Yeah, like I wonder. I wonder how. I don't know how much that happens nowadays for most shows. Like if you're watching a Mad Men or a, a, a Breaking Bad or one of those sort of big name shows, how often those licenses also? Because like for me, I have I, there's a lot of shows that I watch over the time that like there's a song track a, a, attached to that certain moment, right? Yeah. And you're like watching it again, like this feels odd because there's something else. Like it's like switching a, a, the actor that plays the character. You know, I mean, because there's a lot of shows that the, the the music of the show is another character in the show. You know, I I remember uh, Supernatural, like after like the third or fourth season, I think Kripke left and was still credited as an executive producer or something, but he wasn't actively show running anymore. And the classic rock music left for like four or five seasons of the show. And I'm like, I'm not watching the same show. This isn't right. Like this, the, that music was a character within the show. And everything got changed because they play like generic rock song number seven, you know, instead. And you're just like, no, 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 no. I need to hear Kansas right here. That's what needs to be here is Kansas, not something from artless.io, you know, like it has to be something recognizable. Well, yeah. I mean, and it, it, I mean, it's that way for, you know, uh, movies, especially. I mean, you, how many times you're like, okay, what movie is this? And you hear it on the radio and like, what movie is this? And yeah. everybody's like, yep, then we know what that movie is. Yeah. So if it's not there, Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, you're like, well, I don't, I don't know if I like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you think about it, and I, I wonder about that about movies now. I'm sure these licenses are built in because I think money is uh, movies are, are sort, of, sort of different ball game, yeah. right? But like, if you think of like Caddyshack or the I'm All Right song, right? <laughs> yeah. There, there's some certain movies, your songs you hear, and like that's that movie, right? Right. Um, well, and some of those, and, and probably still today. I mean, like Bond songs, they're made for that movie. You know, right. so they're recorded, become popular, but they're they were made for that movie. But other times, like you know, James Gunn makes a play playlist list in his head and right. and just puts it and, on the and goes out and buys those songs. Buys for the, the movie. songs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, can you imagine you're watching Top Gun and all of a sudden it's like I can't drive fifty five instead of Danger Zone. <laughs> 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 you know, if you drive fifty five, you fall out of the air. What are you talking about? Yeah. Uh, it's it's just a, it's just, yeah it's so important and and I think that speaks to why editing is so important is that those the the changes in the evocative feel are tied to the show itself a show will have an editing feel you know the, the 
real world had a very specific, especially that first season had a very specific feel to all of the cuts. Like it was this weird kind of grungy, you know, almost jump cutty. Like you could feel it happening and it was, it was jarring, but it, it worked, you know? And that's, again, the editing was a character in the show. It was something we hadn't seen before because we hadn't ever seen what they were showing us. We had never seen reality TV before. So it was very important to it. And I think a lot of shows are kind of like that. And that's why what you do is so specific and important because it can change the entire feel of a show if it's edited differently. I mean, I'm obviously I'm speaking to the choir, but like for the people that are listening, like I want them to think about that so that they don't discount, you know, everybody's like, Oh, the actor's important. The director's important. But it's like, no, the editor's really fucking important guys. Like it's really important because if, if they're not, editing the right flow, everything gets discombobulated. Yeah. And, 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 you know, with regards to that and going back to the music a little bit is that, you know, there is, there is a, a, a sense of awareness of, of time stamping music. And we went through not now, but like about five years ago, this sort of point of trying to score shows with music that didn't seem to timestamp the day of, and that's coming off of like having edited shows like in the early nineties, where you sort of like, uh, if you look at the, the real worlds or the challenges or those sort of reality shows, they had a lot of music of that particular year mm -hmm. system of a down. And so you could listen, go back and be like, Oh, I know what year year this was mm -hmm. because you would be like, this is the soundtrack of that year. And right. so in the, in the, in the mid you know, like probably like 2006, 2007, they went through this whole process of like, let's score more cinematic so that there's no timestamp to these shows and so that they resonate longer so that viewers don't have a, a specific, oh, year attachment to a show. That's changed a little bit and, and it sort of bounces back and forth because I think that there's uh, that necessity to make shows topical. That and also just like, we'll... You know, there's a lot of shows now for like Paramount Plus that we're, we're, we're doing that like have a sort of a time nostalgia to it. Right. right. And so as we're bringing certain characters back for the shows that resonated in the early 90s or the mid 90s and they're bringing them back now and sort of like uh, bringing music of that time so that sort of like, you know, it resonates for the viewers. Essentially, the people that can afford Paramount Plus are the people that like. Of that time right. period, right? So us, essentially. Yeah. So like, <laughs> <laughs> well, and I and I can see value to both ways, you know, like because nostalgia is so overwhelmingly positive. Like I wouldn't want to go back and watch season three of the Real World with just some like generic non-timestamp music. I want to fit with whatever's happening. I mean, nobody's pulling out an iPhone in season three. So I know when it is like, so, you know, like, let's go ahead and leave the music in, you know, I, granted, there's probably some stuff that's not that you don't want to date, but gosh, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of, maybe it's just cause I'm an old man stuck in my ways, but I just, I like the music to be left. I want it to be the same music. So you, you, you've worked on some of these challenge shows, right? Yeah. And then also some say I would say like big brother type of situations as well. Like where, you know, people in a, in a space. Yes. I mean, yeah. the basic concept of like most shows. The challenge shows are slightly different because they, you know, there, there's that activity that's going on. For right? sure. Right. right. Uh, is there a preference that you, is it, would you rather do one or the other or is it, it's all pretty fun? No, I think it's all fun. I think, you know, the versatility of, of it all is, is, it works for me because there's different, you know, it is my job is a, is a problem solver. And I, you know, so that aspect carries from both like 
you know, taking scenes or, or different moments like challenge moments that are very adventure. And so uh, for me, it's sort of like I like the variety. And that's probably why I gravitated towards editing, working shorter terms and stuff, because you're you're giving something a canvas and it's constantly evolving. And so you're having a problem solve. And so like, you know, I do I do like challenges and sports or reality competitions because there's so many different elements that you can elevate. And now, honestly, we're going through this fantastic what I call just technology has finally caught up to what I wish we could have done years ago because like the aspect of like, I remember working on shows years ago and saying, God, this would be so amazing if we had a drone or a high Uh elevated camera Uh, in terms of like, you know, we would have to do jib and you know, in the nineties and early two thousands and stuff, it was was shot with a jib or a big crane essentially to get a big shot. And so, um, you know, those shots were very limited. And so now we're, I remember even like in the last five years ago, I was saying like, I was, uh, you know, they have drone competitions now. And so like, these are fantastic people. And I was like, God, we should get drone people to shoot, you know, put a camera on there and, and film this stuff. And now in the last year, we are, I am seeing shots that I dreamed about. Actually, I was very excited. I was telling a couple of editors, I'm like, we are so lucky to be working in this time where budgets are getting cut, but we are seeing shots that I dreamed about where this drone comes out of the sky and and gives you a real close up shot of a person. Right. It, it and elevates reaction. the product just by you know having that that you know Hollywood you know over the top uh, it's, view. It's so incredible and exciting, and it's and I think it's what I think like is awesome about technology, right? Because we can linger in these shots that like, and that's a big thing too. I think that's going to evolve how we edit shows now because you know for a while it was like. Let's add a lot of cuts, a lot of edits, make things faster, much more frenetic. Uh-huh. You know, if you ever watch a show like The Amazing Race, that is a very like stylistically edited show that's very frenetic. That you don't, you probably don't get a a, a, a shot longer than about two seconds uh-huh. because it's a constant go, and that's sort of the the beauty of that show. Very talented editors, and it's built that way. It's but it's you know they don't linger in a in a cinematic shot that you would do in a movie with like a six second shot, right? right. And I think that's the ever-changing thing that uh, we're. <laughs> <laughs> My cat has been awesome. I love it. It's, it's, I got to say, it's been nice because I have, I have a dog. And so living with the eight-month-old uh, dog has been quite life-changing, having never had a dog. And so uh, it's always curveballs. And I've had a lot of Zooms. And uh-huh. my dog just sort of decides to pop into a network uh, Zoom and... Hi, this is my my dog Bailey. Right, yeah. <laughs> he's, well, the, he's the other showrunner. Like we, we, we did. We made like okay, the kids cannot be anywhere around because we don't want noise. And all of a sudden, the cat turns on the TV. You're like what? <laughs> well, uh, the cat can't live without TV. So. Yes, that's, that's uh, stormed out. And, uh, <laughs> no, but to bring it back, and, and it, it's 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 a fun time to be an editor, uh, especially if you're working on reality TV shows, because like production value is being raised inherently by technology. By technology. Yeah. I mean, LED lighting in itself and being able to shoot more cheaply at night is, is, is a thing, right? I mean, they and get good quality light without having to bring out a bunch of, you know, heavy power sucking equipment is probably, you know. And, and it lasts longer. I mean, it's not as disposable, you know, yeah. LED lights last so much longer. I mean, even with photography, I, like the, the, the cheap lights that I can get that are pretty good quality that, that would have been five, 600 bucks, you know, 10 years ago or like 200 bucks, you know, yeah. like it's insane. Like how led is like changed everything. Dimmable. Yeah. 
all that yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think the biggest problem now is probably like shooting maybe too much. You know, it's kind of hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're shooting, you're able to, because of GoPros and, and you can mount cameras everywhere. Yep. And now you can shoot slow-mo in these GoPros and stuff, which mm -hmm. is an inherent problem already because, not to get too technical, but like you can't put time code on, on, on GoPros. And so you're having to sync up shots. Because, oh. uh, you know, the technical aspect of it is that when you go shoot something, everything gets grouped, right? So right. Uh, it gets put on a canvas. Essentially, it's a timeline, but you have an access multicam group that essentially has every single angle in one clip, right? Right. So, but it's all time stamp. But it's all time stamp. And most of it is, but nowadays, certain GoPros can't inherently have time code on itself. So someone has to laborly sync sync oh, all wow. these GoPro cameras. So you can have 24 cameras and someone literally has to do that. Well, that brings uh, another question. Uh, camera quality has changed. Uh, HD you know, from when you started, has that been a challenge of, of, you know, dealing with HD image versus, you know, uh, whatever you were getting uh, in 2001? You know, there is a big, you know, I personally, from an editor perspective, because we're really technically, well, from, a, let's speak from a, from a personal TV watcher, right? Most of us have 4K, I have 4K TV, mm. but I don't get 4K programming, right? So like, I mean, we don't get the top quality of what is available. So I think we're still over in this hub of like not seeing the full potential of what can be filmed. So right. that that line is still sort of like pushed because I inherently there's a problem of storage for most mm -hmm. most of these. When you sh it's easy to say let's shoot in 4K, which is not a problem. The cameras are available, the lenses are everything is available, but the amount of storage you have for filming like a day shoot in 4K right. versus HD is like night and day. 100%. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially if you're shooting different well, locations. And then you go to 8K, you know, it's like, yeah, I can only imagine well, what and, that and, would be. And power power needs. I mean, if you're shooting 4K, you're going to chew up a lot more power. Uh, you know, I mean, that's the, yeah. I mean, it can be more expensive exponentially almost. I like it in the sense that like, obviously as an editor, like inherently if you met an editor, they're pretty cranky. They're pretty much like... <laughs> You know, like cranky about everything. Oh, why didn't you get this shot? Oh, we should have got this shot. Oh, we should have shot it this way, right? We there's a great divide between post and production. <laughs> I always say, and I, and in the last couple of years, we've been trying to bridge that a little bit because, like, you know, we're always complainers about stuff. But for me, 4K is like I can punch into a shot if it wasn't crop right. Yeah, and the viewer and it gives you such endless other possibilities to punch in it and move shots. There's so much data there. Like there is so right, much and, data. and yeah. as far as color correction, is it widen the spectrum of what yeah. you can do? So yeah, so and and they do come out. It, it is a whole night and day situation. So like for me, it's like let's push technology. But mm -hmm. I know it's an easier said than done when like I'm not having to worry about how much storage space. Uh, well, I mean, the nice thing about storage is, you know, I can't remember, I, never, I can never remember the law, but you know, it doubles every year cost versus storage, you know, and it's not the same with processing power. It's storage is getting cheap. I mean, you know, and as long as we don't go to like 24K, uh, you know, you can get a NAS system that has terabytes of storage, even on the consumer side for like a couple hundred bucks. You know, so I know that obviously the professional side would be more expensive because you want them to be reliable. But in the grand scheme of things, if if storage prices keep doing what they've been doing over the last 10 years, it might be more attainable unless the quality continues to grow too. And we're at 30K, 40K, whatever, you know, the, the, that much data being larger. But it is like even in my small amount of working with video, having that 4K is super valuable. Yeah, I think there's, there's going to come a time where like the demand is going to be there, right? Where like the viewers are demanding the program. And I know, mm -hmm. I remember like, I remember like years ago popping into a Best Buy when HD came out and you'd go into the special room to watch HD and you're yeah. like, whoa, 
this is so cool. Yep. And then mm-hmm. you're like, you buy your, you know, I remember buying those droplets of water. It's so <laughs> great, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that was like, that was like 480. It was like 480. My wife would hate me because I would always go in Best Buy and like, I'd be like, I'll see you in about an hour. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go in this room and like, and, uh, and then you're like, this is fantastic. What can I watch on this? And they're like, well, there's three shows right now. Right. And if you watch the other shows, they're going to look weird. <laughs> you know, you start watching things from the like other eras and you're like, ooh, that, that doesn't look right. Because we're, they're, you know, used to a CRT screen and very forgiving to a lot of things. Yeah. I remember when The Walking Dead, the first season of The Walking Dead launched and our AMC didn't have an HD feed at home. And I turned it on. I'm gonna get settled in. Got my popcorn. Got all my happiness. And I start watching. I'm like, "What the hell is this? It's like somebody smeared Vaseline all over the lens. Like I could barely make out what was going on. I'm like, this is garbage. This is not okay. I've been waiting years for this. Oh, I was so like, I almost cried. It was so bad. But on the reverse, like if I watch something that I used to watch in the '70s, and I'm like, yeah, that's the way it should look. And then you watch it in HD. And some of it's shot at a higher quality than it was ever broadcast. And yeah. then you're like, ooh, that's that's not – that's well, weird. It almost well, looks fake. Yeah, it looks yeah, fake. Yeah. I mean, like you can really tell, oh, that's a set. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's so interesting because I was – my 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 colleague, she's a big Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. I never watched it. Sounds really like she's down. good people already. Right? Yeah. No, she's fantastic. <laughs> and um, and so I, I watched the first episode. I was hooked. But then I was also trying to find like the quality of it, right? We're living this like high technology time, but the – the way that we're not able to watch those old shows, like I was watching The West Wing the other day and I'm like, but I don't remember it being that bad of quality. So uh-huh. is it, hmm? why can't we, what? Do I need to get, oh, I, I almost thought like this morning, I was like, I wonder if I should go buy an old TV yeah, exactly, just to right? watch I, those I, old I, shows. Well, because can I program my, uh, to go into like 220p, you know, whatever, just like pixelated a little bit. Have you ever tried to hook up a Nintendo 64 to a flat screen TV? It looks like absolute garbage. Like it's like I don't even know what game this is. It just looks like blotchety splots all over the place. You have to find some kind of a converter to even to smooth have it. it. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. terrible. Oh, it's so bad. I gotta dust out my old Atari twenty six hundred and see uh, what that does to my HD. You know? Uh it will not work. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's. I tell you, there is a video. There's a video online that you can retrofit it so that you can at least get it to RCA. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, yeah. It's just a, there's just a module inside of it that you solder out and then solder a different. You have to order it online and then solder it in, and then you can hook it up to a normal TV. And for the most part, it looks pretty good. But I somebody was just telling me the other day there's like a a kit you can buy now that you just plug everything in. You don't even have to solder it anymore. But I've also got an Atari twenty six hundred sitting on a a shelf at home and I'm afraid like I was going to convert it and I'm like, but what if I screw it up and <laughs> then I won't have an Atari 2600 anymore? <laughs> then what do I do? Well, and not only that, when we were playing those on like tiny screens too. And so if you put it on, a, I mean, everything, you know, the biggest TV in your house was, you know, maybe 26 inches, right? Yeah. And so it, watching TV or playing games on it was like, you're that far away and okay, that, that's fine. But then you put it on a big screen, you're like, oh my God, that is. <laughs> when someone, I was talking to one of the, the IT guys at work and he was saying that Atari is releasing, uh, it's like a, a Atari 2600 Ti or HD or something. It still runs on cartridges and it has all the wow. retro games, but it has an HDMI out. Hmm. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, oh, as a nerd, I want to play my original, but as a realist, 
that's way easier. <laughs> well, there's a thing that I have used. It's called a, a MAME arcade emulator. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so all those are off old CRT screens. So they they take the ROM images and, and dump them. And if you do it on a flat screen LED, it, it it's off-putting sometimes because there, there's a warmth to the CRTs oh, yeah, that yeah. were, you know, I was like, yeah. oh, that's really blocky. Yeah. 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 I miss Pitfall so much, though. I love that game. I I, uh, I had a friend that worked at Activision years ago, and I remember, like, I got invited to go tour the dungeon. It was like, this, uh, I'm like, do you want to see the dungeon? And I was like, what does that mean? He's like, oh, it's this place where, like, they test the games. And so I remember going to the Activision building in Santa Monica and popping down the elevator. And it was like this down floor. And it was like this dark room with couches and monitors. Oh, wow. And those guys must have been in there for like I days. Had, I, had a bud, I had a friend who did that. Days. And yes. I was like, these guys get paid? And he's like, oh, yeah, right. they paid a lot of money. Wow. They get paid a lot of money, but they got to log a lot of stuff, too. <laughs> I mean, it, oh, he doesn't mind logging. No, no, no. no I, I just remember one guy was like, yeah, I have to spend most of my day trying to find out if I can fall off the map and where I can find He's like, he's running this guy along the edge of the map. I mean, the I whole can, time seeing if there's any holes in it. I think I can think of many worse ways to spend days. Most of them I spend eight hours a day, 40 hours a week doing. Yeah. So, I mean. I got to think it's mad, maddening, too. Because what if you you know your job is to obviously test to find the flaws of the games right? right? So you spend like three weeks trying to get to level like thirty five, and you finally get there, and then like ooh glitch. <laughs> I, I might. I found it. I found it. <laughs> it's probably even more maddening knowing the way that that software is these days. If you're like reporting six flaws, the game releases, and those six flaws are still in the game. Oh, we'll fix it in an update in six months. You know what's so interesting about about software and, and, and updates, you know, and, and editing in terms of like what is available. I was telling, I was saying how like I had, a, I had to go to career day not too long ago last year at my kid's school. And so, you know, I was like, oh, I made some posters and I was like, okay, well, I know okay, I'll, I'll add some uh, designs of logos of uh, applications that are used like Avid and Premiere, uh, Final Cut X, which is like this defunct. Mm -hmm. But, um, and so then I started like browsing around to see what, what the kids are doing these days. And there's things like CapCut for like TikTok and things like that. And so, and I showed up to career day and, and um, it was quite fascinating to hear all the take from the little kids of like, oh, well, I use CapCut and like, you know, like <laughs> right? how, how all these applications now sort of, but like nowadays, like there's constant necessity for updating these applications mm -hmm. and they're getting worse. Like I feel like. You know, Avid has been the mainstay of film, television, it, because of its stability. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of applications, of course, CapCut and Premiere and stuff, and they're they're trying to be much more versatile. Final Cut, I thought, was going to be the rival. In fact, actually, for a while, I thought years ago that Final Cut was going to take over Avid because every, the wave, mm -hmm. you know, Cold Mountain was was edited on Final Cut. And, yet, and so there was, there was an inherent wave to shift because it seemed much more, like, user-friendly, but also, like, it, it, it created some stability. And then, and so, but then that went away. It's sort of like, but now like all these updates, we as editors complain about the latest Avid and there's like creating title tools and like all these things. It's like, they are trying to make it user-friendly, but it's becoming much more glitchy. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, uh, Premiere is notorious for launching broken alphas, you know, like it'll, it'll launch and it will just be broken like you'll try to do the most basic things in it and or the render will hang because there's one transition in it or something just weird that it's like how could they not have tested this and you know the the the, the conspiracy theory is that 
uh, they want the users to be their beta testers, basically. So they'll launch an alpha version, which is actually a beta version. They'll just wait for all the complaints to roll in, and then they'll fix it. That's maddening. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's. It, I, I, luckily, I haven't run into as many problems, but like you know, because they've got their whole suite. So Photoshop, a lot of the professional photographers are infuriated, but it's like the industry standard. Yeah, like yeah, you can get GIMP, and there's some other other versions of stuff out there, but they don't have the processing power, and they. They can't do what Photoshop can do. Uh, so all these professional photographers are kind of stuck on Photoshop. But the minute a new version comes out, for the most part, nobody touches it. Because they're like, if I upgrade to this version, if I update to this version, I won't be able to do my workflow because something's going to be broken. So you wait to like the third version update on it so that you can actually do your job. That's scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's, it's yeah. messed up. But they know they have a stranglehold on the certainly the uh, photography industry, you know, and then I, I, I think you notice it less. I've, I've heard a lot of people who use Premiere complain about it. I haven't seen it as much. And Audition is fairly stable. I haven't really seen a lot of problems in Audition. But for what they charge for that suite of editing programs – it should really come out stable. <laughs> well, that's the fascinating too about cost, right? If you yeah. think about it now, like in the in the when I started, you there's a big rig. It was like a, oh. a, a big heavy machine. You couldn't yep. just bring an Avid like to your office. It wasn't like a laptop. <laughs> right, right, right. You had all, the, the hard drives in itself were like big stacks right. like, that had like two gigs, and it was like two towers. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, but nowadays, that's the most fascinating part about it, and I think keeps it all keeps us all fresh. Right. We all, as an editor, you sort of have this inherent ability of like your last edit is your best edit. Right. So you're continuously have this underlying belly pressure to keep up, push the envelope of keep doing things because, you know, applications, you know, you can get Avid for like 30 bucks a month in the suite option. Mm-hmm. Uh, Premiere, the same thing. Everything yeah. is sort of software based. And so, like, again, it's, it's sort of like helping people propel to careers, but also like pushing us all to sort of reinvent things and try different things mm-hmm. and sort of like there is no like cookie cutter like music, right? Like, pushing the envelope of trying different things. And these kids, I'm, I, I'm, I'm fascinated at where we'll be 20, 20 years from now in terms of like all these kids that are already using like CapCut or like, you well, know, even like, just, I mean, you have iMovie on your phone. I yeah. mean, you can, you can create that as, as good, but I mean, you can make a really good rough cut of, of, of something that you've shot on your phone. Well, we haven't even talked about DaVinci Resolve, you know, black magic rolled out DaVinci, you know, years ago, it's free. Yeah. And it is powerful. I mean, it's node based, so it's a little bit different than, you know, a timeline based program, but it it can do some really cool stuff. If I was starting all this mess from scratch, that's probably where I would go because I wouldn't have to pay $600 a year to have the Adobe suite. I could have Audacity and yep. DaVinci, you uh-huh. know, and be fine, you know. Well, it's so interesting because at the start of summer in June, my daughter came in and I said, can I have an app? And I said, sure. What kind of app do you want? She's like, well, I want to do some editing and some ASMR. And I was like, okay. With my daughter? <laughs> yes. And I was like, okay, well, all right. What do you need? And she's like, well, I want to do some audio editing and, and a little bit of picture editing. And so I, I can I get DaVinci Resolve? And I, and I, I was taken back a little bit. I was, I was like, wow. I was impressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I was taken back by the fact that she already knows an application. And, I, and truth be told, 
I didn't know Da Vinci Resolve. Yeah. So this is how like, I'm like, oh, I'm feeling old now because like my daughter who's like 10 going 11 knows an editing software that's different than what I use. Right. <laughs> and I said, well, maybe you want to use Avid. And she's like, no, no, I want to. And she was like, you know, a 10 year old was like, no, no, no. Da Vinci Resolve is like the best thing. It's know? a workhorse. Like, um, and so I, I had yeah. to go, I said, give me a hot minute. And I, and, I, and I said, let me, give me two days. And I watch a bunch of YouTube videos on, uh, on Da Vinci Resolve and it, there's some funny ones actually. You can watch where like a DaVinci Resolve guy tries Avid and <laughs> and is like goes crazy of how, <laughs> how inefficient it is. <laughs> I can't do anything. My all everything is wrong. <laughs> so you know, but but it is. So it's like it's kind of fascinating to see how like all these kids are now using like these different right. apps. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting because uh, another editor friend who is like he he doesn't update often like he'll stay with the five-year-old version because he knows how it goes uh-huh. you know and he's like i don't I, they add things and it's not in the right place anymore or something you know it's like uh, and he's like uh, i'll i'll retrain myself every five years but not every year you know <laughs> i'm always afraid i'm gonna miss something i've got that fomo you yeah. know like what, what this new this new uh text-based editing or like you know i want to i want to learn these new things and then immediately i'm like why am i learning these new things what i was doing work before <laughs> that's where why he's, am I at. he's like with it, you know? i can do what i'm tasked to do with what i have it's so true it's almost <laughs> a memory too like i still have the same muscle memory functions for my keyboard that i've programmed probably in 2005 mm-hmm. and they haven't changed and maybe with a modification or two it's the same muscle memory mm-hmm. which is why i can do everything super fast right? right but like you know i've if you ever it's really fascinating to watch other editors sitting there and you look at how they do things and how they even manipulate it's the brain like i remember sitting in my early years shadowing an editor and he was he would take his timeline and slice it all and nothing would be locked and then he would shift things over and i was like why are you doing that? that is, <laughs> you're going to, you know, mix your, your slide, slide, everything. It's going to come out all, he's like, no, no, no. I just have that one line that gives me the marker, essentially your guiding point for all your tracks. And so nothing will ever seem sync. And he's like, that's crazy. And I said, you're crazy. <laughs> and it's just, it's interesting how the brain works and everyone functions right. in different ways. Yeah, and, yeah. and sort of like you sort of, for me, it's you sort of get stuck on a certain way and you don't want to change things. I remember how to, I remember learning Final Cut and I was like, oh, okay, fine, I'll do it because it's that's the wave and stuff. But yeah, you don't want to change things up because right. you're like, yeah. you know, you like what you like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like you said, it, it, you can do things in a, uh, you know, efficient manner, and, you know, however many years, these are the keystrokes. That's Absolutely. It. Yeah. And, and that's what you go with, right? right. Like, yeah. At the end of the day, it's like whatever feels comfortable. And then you're like, you know. Well, what's really maddening is like, I'll watch a video, um, like a workflow video. I mean, like, I, I feel like I could be more efficient. So I'll watch it and I'm like, wow, that's a really cool workflow. And then I'll try to adapt it. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. Yeah, I you, like my beautiful disaster over here. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah, I almost have that internal monologue where you're like, like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's almost like, like like having your favorite mouse, and the, you grab another one that doesn't have that button on the side. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, you're yeah. like, I, I can't, yeah. I can't do it. <laughs> too, it's too too soon. Okay, too soon. <laughs> that happened to me yesterday. I was trying to edit some audio, and I kept reaching for a shortcut button that I don't have on my travel. <laughs> mouse and it was driving me nuts it's so different nowadays because we're all remote all, all, most of the industry is remote and right. so like in the old the old days of like working in the office uh you know someone would be like okay i need you to work on this uh this quick change right now but you're gonna go to avid three or whatever avid edit bay three and you pop oh. in there and you're like you're sitting down you're like making a move and like you're dealing with somebody else's settings mm-hmm. and you're like the hotkeys and, and, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and in those times and that's nowadays but now you'd have a showrunner or ep 
you would edit on the fly, which I think a lot of editors don't have nowadays, like that peer pressure. Mm -hmm. I always see newcomers now and you're like, you guys have it so good. In the old days, (laughs) you would sit in edit bay in this big suite and there'd be a big couch and people have salads and lunches and stuff. And you're like (laughs) one chair, one chair, one desk and big monitor having to make these changes on the fly while having a small conversation, right? And so you'd pop in, you have this executive producer, you'd be like, yeah, we just need to make this quick track swap. And I'm like, yeah, no problem popping in. And you're like... I don't have my settings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And you're like trying to do basic functions and it's like, you don't know how to edit and you're looking like super like in the shoulder. <laughs> it's like, can we, we do this? Can, this? We, can we do this already? I'm like, sorry, do not have my settings. And so I'm like, I remember having like an AE and it wasn't like technology wise. It could something that could be simply just like brought in really, really fast. Yep. And so like, you're there trying to do your keyboard <laughs> settings and you're like, I just can't function like this. And so, <laughs> you know, and I don't edit every day. So like I have my settings, but I have to, relearn them every time because i was like i'm getting old like every time something new comes in it pushes something old out so I, it could have been last week and i would have had all my shortcuts and been flying through a project and then a week goes by and i sit down and i'm like i need stickers i need yeah. stickers <laughs> my keys i need stickers because i don't remember it's so it funny because my i uh, my keyboard died like last year and so i had to just take whatever apple key keyboard was around the house and my son came in and he said where's your keyboard? And I said, Oh, this is my keyboard. And he's like, where are the colors? Yeah. You know? And it's like, Oh, I don't need it. He's like, you don't need it. I'm like, Nope. I'll just like, do, 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 you know, but like, he was like, Oh, the yellow does this and the red does this and the blue does the yeah. lift and all these things and stuff. But yeah, it's, it's uh it's all muscle memory nowadays and yeah. stuff. But yeah, I don't miss those days of having people in my, you know, like <laughs> I remember, back. Yeah, yeah, I remember first day, right there, you show up and most of the editors would start a couple of day, a couple of every Monday and they would all, the, the coordinator would be like, okay, you can pick an edit bay, which one you want. And I would always pick the smallest edit bay without a couch mm-hmm. by design. Nice. And they're like, this is so cramped. There's a nice one that's like big and open. It's got a window and a big couch and big, they was like, no, no, no. And he's like, why? He's like, because that's where the producers want to hang out. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I do not want people hanging out in my office <laughs> and stuff. And so I'd make it almost the most uncomfortable thing. Like, and, and sure enough, like the, the editor would be like, pick the nicest big suite. That's where the the showrunner hang out all day. It's right. the most awkward thing to like edit <laughs> with a sh- with a person in the background because they're like, you know, they, they would sit there and be like, "Oh, that's not quite right." And I'm like, uh, "Yeah, I'm editing here, so like this is trial and error situation and stuff." <laughs> so like, yeah, those 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 days of like, it's the nice part about it now being able to like work from home. When you were telling me uh, about because of uh, people are working from home that people in different time zones having different editors in different time zones especially with reality is somewhat beneficial because of the amount of footage you guys pour through and when you get it right yeah so that's the best part like obviously like i mean i like it not having to drive three hours to you know back and forth an hour and a half each way to work and stuff but now really like you can move anywhere and have and be really flexible to producers which is fantastic. Like we have an editor who is working in uh, in Norway, and so you know she's by you know we're in Los Angeles, and so like as we get notes in the morning, producers can quantify those notes, make thoughts, adjustments, figure out what they're going to do, problem solve, and when the other editor wakes up at like 10 p.m. and it's good to start your day, you have a game plan, and then you know you talk through the changes, and then you go to bed and you wake up in the morning the next morning and like 
the, like a dream. It's, it's, it's already done. It's, there, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's sort of a godsend and for a producer to have somebody working like completely different opposite. And I, I, I kind of, and they're not burning the midnight oil. They're just doing it in there. Yeah. Right. I, she, she just messaged us that she's leaving Norway and, and coming back. And I was like, so sad about it. Said, sad, <laughs> sad emoji. Cause really like, it was like, I, I feel like a saving grace to have somebody on that those hours. Cause you could, most of the time you're sort of problem solving during the day. And so you have editors waiting around for you to make decisions on things. And, you know, of course, from an editor perspective, I enjoyed those days. Oh yeah. Take the time, like figure out what you're going to do with my notes. Like, you know, and then half the day and then you're scrambling to try and get everything done in a short amount of time. But now, yeah, those, those schedules, I have an editor friend who works uh, for a production company based in New York. And so like, you know, their, their East coast editors wrap at six 30. And if you know, an East coast editor, we talked about this, that like they're rough around the edges. You ask them to stay past six 30. They're like, no, <laughs> you know, are you serious? I'm out of here. And so like they've, they've, they realized that sort of like, you know, vibe of the East coast. And so like they hire editors on the West coast to fill those sort of extra hours. So that's six 30, they hand their timeline and they finish their work until like what we would be like 10 o'clock. And then they can accomplish everything they want. And uh -huh. so that time zone is such a variable, uh, nice actual, actual, uh, element to be able to get these things done in a short amount of time. Right. Cause you got uh, quick turnarounds, right? Yeah, everything's pretty quick nowadays. You know, I think like we are certainly, as we're, you know, working up new editors, you know, getting them used to the sort of like fast turnaround because there is, it's just a, how quickly can you problem solve this? And, you know, most, most network notes are addressed within like two days. And I don't know what, what film, what the film schedules are like, but I know that we have about two days to, to address notes. Right. Um, it's a very, very quick turnaround. And so you guys start off with how many cameras usually? You know, it, it varies. You know, obviously as, as on challenge sets, there's, there could be over 25 cameras. And if you really think about GoPros, wow. there's like 30 cameras. So you've got 30 cameras all shooting eight hours of footage. Essentially, you know, yeah. you know, it's hard. Like production puts these GoPros on these rigs sometimes too. So like there's a lot of times, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, but sometimes they get great moments. And a lot of times they get the moments that the real camera guys can't catch because mm -hmm. something happens on, in a moment. And that happens to be like your, your, your insurance base of Kevin and camera. I don't know what survivor things show survivor. They shoot a lot of cameras as well, like a lot of cameras. And so it is, it is a lot of, a lot of footage being filmed across the board. Right. And, yeah. and so the loggers and the assistant editors have a lot of stuff to weave Yeah, and, and so we talked earlier about logging in the early days. So now that the modern day use of loggers is gone now and sort of pilot wear and logging that footage is sort of gone and sort of streamlined. And maybe it was sort of an introduction to the fact that there's better ways and sort of the evolution of how um, sure. you can make things and produce shows a little bit faster without necessarily having to watch everything. I mean, everything gets watched, but now you're relying on producers' field notes and things like that to, to highlight things. And then you watch moments. And then if you really find a moment that is compelling television or a compelling storyline, then you really deep dive into that sort of hour or two to see what of, others of, things. What, what, what coverage you had for that. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of it, obviously, it's like, you know, you know, Greek uh, chorus is a big thing for reality TV, like the commentary on the commentary. So, like, you're trying to find those things. And, and producers are fantastic at being able to log all this stuff and write this stuff down so that at least you have a, a good, solid base of, like, information as it's come down. So, really, even as production happens, you sort of know what storylines are sort of taking place Got it. By, yeah. what, by what's being filmed because they're sort of being able to jot down everything that's happening. Oh, so-and-so, and we should be able to track this. And, mm -hmm. and um, you know, resident professionals now are so good at it 
they're able to sort of like quantify that it's you know the the education process for the for the creation of television is sort of like a mainstay so like it's it's very efficient now you don't need to go back to like having to watch somebody or having to pay me like which five hundred dollars yeah. a week to to watch it only much yeah how much that would cost with 20 cameras to have pay somebody to go through and physically watch all each one for eight hours worth of footage. Yeah. Yeah, It's just not needed anymore. Really. And and really challenges, you know, you sort of like that sort of like competition based. Most shows like that will have, you know, all the incidents will have in a certain moment and obviously like they're covered by the same time. So beginning and then you can find a different angle for certain things and stuff. But yeah, yeah, most, you know, most, most, most scenes, you know, end up having one camera, two cameras, most have one and, you know, as an editor, like being very fortunate to have camera shooters and DPs that know the business and, and know how to shoot a scene and to establish like a wide and a medium shot and close up shots. And, and that's why it's really hard for, I would imagine for a new, new beta, new camera op to go in and start filming stuff because it is a very, mo- I, and I've never worked production, so I don't know what that is. I've always complained early on. I'm like, oh, why did they get this shot? And then you really realize just, if you think about it, Everything has happened in real time. You don't know what the scene. We could be recording a podcast, and we don't know what the actual storyline is going to be. And so, like for right. a camera guy to come in and say, like, "Oh, you should have gotten the shot of Tony like looking, you know, upset." He didn't know. He didn't know what the storyline was. Right. I mean, so yeah. we have right. a, you know, we watch it later and we're like, "How clearly you didn't see?" Well, we've been watching like an hour of footage beforehand, right. so we have that moment, but that epiphany moment of what the storyline is going to be. But so they're fantastic at being able to cover it, and then they've gotten better actually in the last couple of years in terms of being able to get coverage because it's mm-hmm. important. Like the cutaway is important. You don't have reshoots. There's no reshoots. Right. Like, exactly. Dis- despite the fact that you know there is an inherent thought that reality TV is produced, it's not. Especially competition-based shows, you get what you get. And if you don't get boring cast members or poor people that just don't know how to say a good soundbite or, or do entertaining things, there's not much you, you can do. There's nothing you can do. You can animate it, and you can. I mean, you can. You know, create moments. The editor right. can obviously has great liberty to be able to accentuate certain things and 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 make things exciting, cut them faster, and right. To, but yeah, you can't manufacture charisma. No, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, just add music. One <laughs> doubt, add sound, add sound, yeah, exactly. sound effects, and a couple of uh, bells and whistles graphics, right. and there yeah. you go. You know, so just some suspenseful music in the background. We'll feel something, right? <laughs> yeah. It sounds like like it's it's crazy. I've worked in a lot of different lines of work, and the one thing that every area has always suffered from was communication. People are terrible at communicating their ideas and their intentions and stuff. But it sounds like, I mean, that's what makes it run well-oiled. Like, there has to be a communicative through line. You know, if, if, they're, if the producers are making notes and saying, this is what we want, if the communication fails, then what? Like, what, what's, the, what's the fail-safe? Well, thankfully, you know, thankfully for us, you know, who gets hired has a big to do in mm-hmm. terms of like knowing the show, knowing what have you done in terms of like experience, right? That's the be all end all for us is that, you know, I think we talked earlier about bridging the gap between post and production. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, across all shows, I think there's inherent, there has been an inherent divide because like, you know, the added notion of like, ah, oh, we'll fix it in post, <laughs> you know? And that comes from the fact that that production is, it's an entity and, and post is an entity and they don't generally talk to each other other than your showrunner who bridges the gap or certain producers that sort of like bridge right. the, right. bridge both sides of it mm-hmm. right but they're in, it's one thing and the other thing and so you know in the last couple of years we've been really having those conversations of the, the pre-production right aspect of like this is what we expect mm-hmm. this is what, what was a problem last year mm-hmm. and or the last series and this is what we need to sort of make changes on that, that will help us help you and having those conversations like honestly because you mentioned Tony that there were so many different 
cameras and some shots, right? So many, many times, sometimes some shots may get left, left out. The, the DP really had a vision for a certain mo- motion, but because production wraps and it's all in post and uh, that communication doesn't happen, mm-hmm. a lot of times those shots never get used and they right. were, maybe they get buried in something. So that's sort of, we've been really trying the last couple of seasons to sort of bridge that gap. Pre-conversations, during conversations to shoot, post-conversations sort of like, so that all the, everything that gets hammered out in terms of like, we really need this, or we didn't get enough of this footage, or we really need night footage, or time. You know these sort of elements that they would because they're so knee deep, and I and I my f- production people live a nomad existence where like it's like twelve, fourteen, sixteen hour days, right? Right, and you know it's craziness out there trying to capture everything. If there's a moment that happens in the other house or another room, and you have all these things, and so they're flying by the seat of their pants trying to get everything, and you're worried about a shot from over here that, that no one got, and so like I think bridging that gap and this expectations. Um, and the experience of having done it more than one season or two seasons, they're so instinctual about a lot of things. And I have an editor on my show right now that he worked in the field. And so he has that sense sensibility about like understanding what they're going through and sort of like, we've had conversations about that. Oh, well, that makes sense now. And so, but bridging that gap is a big thing where like, I think we are washing away that divide because it's so, it's not that way. It's like, you know, we are as editors in post putting out what they did. And so it would be, you know, like, we want to put the best thing of what they mutual, shot. Mutually beneficial to... Right. To, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. And so... But there is an inherent, like, you know, I think at the, the beginning, I was... Uh, we've had pre-production means where, like, they're very sensitive, you know, when we ask, ask for things. And, you know, <laughs> because we sit in an office and are very cushy and we have no hindsight of what they do. And so we're, we make asks and they're like, but you realize how hard that is? You know? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, no, no, I would ask. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds simple enough to me. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> if if you could leave everybody with with one encapsulated thought of what the most important part of what you do is, what would you say? Oh, absolutely. It's storytelling. Awesome. You know, what what encompasses what we do, people ask me that. Well, what do you do? Well, yes, I put images together and I score them and I make moments and they can be funny and they can be dramatic and they can be exciting or sad, but above all, it's like, what's the story we're telling? That's the biggest thing about an editor is it is that you take whatever material and you make it compelling. And if it's somebody's story, is it, that's that's it. Without a good story, it's not compelling. It's not entertaining right, right. and not engaging. You need to have a story, something that you're trying to tell. And that's that's all. That's We're storytellers at the end of the day. That sounds perfect. Right? <laughs> that's, that, that, that's awesome. And it's true. I, I can't express enough how thankful we are that you came in to talk to us, Ernesto. It's it's been very informative, eye opening, and a lot of fun. It's so um, fun. Yeah. I, I I love it. I would speak hours and hours <laughs> upon hours on it from different because it, it, it really is all encompassing. It's, it's and uh, you know I always have conversations about the fact that you know maybe I, I talk to somebody who will become an editor. You know, right. like I will some, someday retire, and and that that inherent energy or uh, excitement about it will be the next storyteller who, right, who right. can make me cry, right? Or tell me a story when I'm an old man sitting in a retirement home and watching this and this compelling right. story. And I'm like in tears. I'm like, what a great editor. Well, and, you know, I've never heard an interview with an editor. You know, I've never heard anyone talk to an editor and be like, hey, what, what, do, you, what do you do? Can you explain it to us? And frankly, most of the people that listen to this aren't going to be industry people. They're fortunate enough to hear your step-by-step of what it is so that this is probably their first exposure. They've heard the term, 
and they have a loose idea, but now you've given them the information to like, this is what it really is. So that, that was my hope with this, that, that people would finally be able to hear and appreciate what you do. And yeah. What, peel back what, the curtain on yeah. what people do and what they actually do yeah. in said job. Yeah. yeah. And I will say that, I, you know, above all, if anybody is actually ever becoming, thinking of becoming an editor and so you have to be really uh, thick skinned, right? Mm-hmm. We're critic. We have to take criticism constantly. The constant evolving of an editor is to re-edit mm-hmm. and make many changes upon changes upon changes with a smile. And that's the hard part for a lot of people because they can't take criticism for feedback and, uh, you know, you're right, being tasked to re-edit something. And so, like, uh, there's an inherent personality trait that you have to sort of have to be that, that, mm-hmm. that editor yeah. that, that resonates because that's what, you know, you could be a, the most fantastic editor and have the most important vision of, 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 of doing things and editing things. But if you don't have the, the ability to work with people and collaborate and have that sensibility to take someone's vision, even though you feel like it's wrong and make it happen, then you're not going to survive in this business because it is a very personal personal business and you have to be in a room for somebody or communicate somebody's. And so that, that to me is like the be all end all. You have to have the right, the right vibe. That's a great outlook too. I mean, not take it personally and and to do the best job you can do. That's a great outlook, man. I really appreciate that. And most of all, I just thank you, man, for, for what you do and thank you for sharing it with us. So fun. Mm-hmm. Thanks guys. Thanks.